Welcome to this next edition of the podcast. Take a breath. Anyway, any way you want right now, just take a breath and feel into your body as you're doing it. Feel this body breathing. Feel this breathing body. Feel the parts that are moving. You know, what changes as you breathe in? What changes as you breathe out? What muscles can you feel being activated and what muscles can you feel being released? How much of your structure can you feel? Can you feel down into your, into your belly, into the lower ribs, into the back of the ribs, the front of the ribs? Can you feel into your pelvic floor? You know, the deeper we go into breath work, the more important the capacity to feel into the body becomes. Because otherwise we stay at a very superficial level of practice. Now, before I go further into this concept of embodied awareness, I want to mention the fact that we are segmented. When we look at a worm, we look at a worm or an insect, we can clearly see they're segmented. And we don't think of ourselves as segmented in that way. We're, you know, we're, we're so anthropocentric. We think of ourselves mostly as superior and the, often the ultimate life form, the most important life form on planet Earth. And of course, simply breathing in will remind us that all the oxygen that goes into all the cells of this living body is made by plants without exception, all of it without exception. Every single molecule of oxygen that goes into your body as you breathe has been generated, split from water by plants and the act of photosynthesis. So that puts us in a very dependent position. We're dependent on plants. So we're not quite as perhaps superior as we think we are, much more interdependent. And I often joke, and there's also truth to the fact that, you know, the idea of being independent is an illusion. It's a huge illusion because actually what we are is interdependent. And the more we look into biology, the deeper we go, the more and more what we find continuously at every level of biology is interdependence, a seamless web of interconnected relational parts. And we are segmented. We don't look segmented, but we're segmented. And our segmented structure is arranged around what we call somites. And each somite has a ring of bone and a pair of nerves emerging from, in our case, a spinal cord. So here we're talking about the segments of a vertebrate. Right? So it's got a ring of bone, one spinal bone, if you like, one vertebral area, and two nerves ar arriving out of that on either side. A pair of nerves. So a somite is, in essence, a segment. We're segmented. We just don't look it. In a human embryo, there are 42 to 44 of these somites. And in a child and an adult, there are around 35 to 37 because several pairs merge into the tail. And there's also structures of the head that emerge from these somites as well. Now, the, the nerves we're talking about here in the somite relationship are composed of incoming, that's information going in, the afferent, if you like, and outgoing or efferent parts. So they receive sensory information from the body and they also allow motor control to the structures of the body. So that's sensory information coming in and motor control going out. Now, I think back on my for a moment to when you maybe learned to ride the bicycle. If when we do a seal, such as riding a bicycle, and also, for example, refined breath work or um, any other skill in the martial arts or any skill at all. But I want to put refined breath work in there because I think it's important as well. 
we need to develop the sensory map first. So with us, we develop the sensory map before we utilize the motor map, the motor function. If you think about learning to crawl or learning to walk, we have to learn through feeling how to do it, how the muscles work, how to switch them on, how, to, how they release before we can do that thing. So doing a thing is made up of feeling and failing, then feeling and failing again, and feeling and failing a little bit less each time, perhaps. It's not a linear process, but we do that feeling and failing before we master that skill, whether it's crawling or walking or running or skateboarding or riding a bicycle or doing refined breath work. But feeling and failing is part of it. And also, if you think about that, that's another way of saying learning and practice, 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 practice. Or in other words, discipline. Now, discipline is a necessary neurological element of refined motor skills and a necessary neurological element of changing old patterns. So if you're going to change something that's has worked in the past but is no longer working then it takes practice it takes time and expertise to shift and change that old pattern into a new pattern and the key element of liberating oneself from stress yourself from stress and building resilience is this discipline discipline is a fantastic word it comes from the latin discipline which means to follow and in essence what we're following is something that's good something we know is is working for us something that we know has has depth has power has beauty so we decide to do it over and over again and not only that but each time we do it we pay such attention that it's never actually the same each time so we're not just repeating a pattern of doing something we're gradually going deeper and deeper into that thing so discipline is a powerful skill without discipline we can't find awareness awareness within the system in this segmented body is what we're looking for to understand and again we're going to go deeper into this and that is the key to creating this resilience really powerful resilience now the nervous system we talk about we have an essential part of the nervous system called the autonomic nervous system which basically means that which runs itself it runs itself it does it by itself autonomic now the autonomic nervous system runs everything you don't think of everything that you can you, you can pay attention to it but everything you actually can't do anything about supposedly but we'll come to that later everything such as digestion blood acidity alkalinity thermogenesis the heat in the body how much carbon dioxide there is in the blood you're measuring you're working with everything all of these systems that run themselves that run your life are autonomic largely run by the hypothalamus but they're autonomic hypothalamus is a small part of the brain in the, in the midbrain Autonomic is in charge of its own function, and mostly we have no voluntary access to it, and largely this is true. Now, the autonomic nervous system works in total conjunction with the endocrine system, and it's linked by the hypothalamus. So it's a, a, a union of the brain, brain tissues, working through the hypothalamus into the neuroendocrine system. So really it's a neuroendocrine you know, nerves and endocrine system. It's a continuation. It's a different flavor, a different continuum, like we're talking about with the seamless web. It's a different continuum from nerve tissue into the structures that then control the glands. So the kind of hypothalamus and the pituitary, this kind of crossover zone between the brain and the endocrine system. And the autonomic is everything that runs itself. The voluntary is the things you can do, like move your fingers. Skeletal muscle function is largely voluntary. We can make a choice and we can do things for most of us anyway. That's how it works. There are always exceptions where things haven't been 
structured well or where people have had accidents or if there's been disease, of course. But this voluntary nervous system enables us to do things like touch our fingers, oppose our fingers and thumbs. I'm deciding to do that. And the voluntary nervous system, again, enables us to do a lot of breath work practice so we can decide to lengthen the inhale or lengthen the exhale. So we've got these two interlacing and interfacing systems, the voluntary and the autonomic. And both of them are profound. And again, we've talked about the crossover here between these systems to a degree bringing the brain. The hypothalamus, for example, has, you know, it's linked to so many places in the brain. You know, the limbic system, what we feel affects the hypothalamus. You know, the cognitive aspects, the cerebral cortex, what we think affects the hypothalamus. You know, the brainstem is linked into the hypothalamus. How we breathe and what's happening with our um, stress-based systems affects the hypothalamus. Therefore, it affects the whole of the endocrine system. How we see the world, how we perceive the world also affects the hypothalamus. So these everything is connected inside. And this, this nexus of this relationship between the brain and the nervous system and the endocrine is the hypothalamus, a profound and powerful little gland. There's very little. Now, modern research on meditation, breathwork, psychoneuroimmunology is showing us that some degree of control is possible over some aspects of these autonomic functions. We have some. You know, Wim Hof has evidenced some interesting um, capacities to be able to work with immune function, to be able to work with controlling temperature. But exactly how much control we have over autonomic functions is yet to be defined. And to be fair, you know, it would be very complicated if we had control over some of those functions. It's good not to have control over all of the autonomic functions because they do a remarkable job of running themselves. And of course, you know, the breathing, the reflexes for breathing are largely autonomic. So what if you, you know, when you're not thinking about breathing, when you're breathing in and breathing out without thinking about it, without awareness, that is a reflexive autonomic system. It's just being run by the autonomic nervous system and it's doing an absolutely fine job of it. It's doing such a good job of it that we have to really ask ourselves questions if it's good to mess with those breathing reflexes. Is it a sensible thing? to say, for example, continuously override breathing reflexes. It may not be. It may not be quite so good as we think it is. But we have to ask ourselves those questions if we're going to be honest about what we're doing with regard to breath work. So how good is it to override breathing reflexes? Let's leave that question there. We'll come back to that later, potentially. Now, when I talked about depth breath work practice, I talked about the capacity to feel into the body or embodied awareness. Now, embodied awareness isn't making the body conscious. It's not doing that. It, 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 but what you're doing is you're finding or uncovering, if you like, the already existent awareness within the body as the body. You know, you're getting into the sort of like myofascial web and you're feeling the activation and the release of structures. You know, one of the things I talk about sometimes is, if, you know, if you take a hand and gaffer tape it up very firmly for a week or two and take the gaffer tape off, your brain will have... Um, considered that to be like a blade. No longer is it five digits. And you then have to do some kind of movement practice or get somebody else to do it for you of wiggling that blade open like this to get that sensory map switched back on again so that you can then find the motor map and move those digits independently. That's kind of like hand yoga, you know, hand Pilates or something like that. But you're finding that, that awareness. So when the body has been, say, for example, somebody's been sitting down in a chair for several decades and the body has coalesced into this kind of, you know, tightened structure. 
where there is less awareness in terms of the individual parts of the movement. Perhaps somebody's been doing a particular movement activity, which is, say, running down a road where everything just runs in a linear array of movement. And there's less awareness of the subtle relationships, say, between the muscles on the inside of the legs, the adductors, the quadriceps on the top, the hamstrings below, and, and the structures on the outside and the rotating muscles of those hips. That's less defined because they're doing this repeated pattern of movement. And in some ways, what happens then is we start to gaffer tape up bits of our body, you know, through sedentary activity, through not moving or through moving in particular patterns, routine, repeated patterns. So embodied awareness is about changing that. It's about coming in and feeling the movement, the capacity to feel into tissues and their differing relationships as they move in relationship to each other, not in a sort of rigid pattern and not into sort of coalesced chunks but in, 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 in the sort of subtlety and nuances of movement. And this is really very, very necessary before we go into depth breath work. We're going to go deeper if we want to go deeper. So this embodied awareness is a key personal discipline, a personal practice. And of course, the practice that I teach around this is, is I call the Nagas. Um, it's available on my YouTube channel. Um, you can also find it in, you know, on some of the courses that I've got on my website, but you'll find the Nagas there. And it's, it is a good practice. And there are many others. I mean, some of the other practices I recommend are things like uh, Michaela Bohm's non-linear movement practice. You know, there are many, many others. Tai Chi is a really good practice to play with. There are many. So these kinds of practice that work with the dance and relationship between stability and mobility in differing arrays of movement and ideally in different relationships to the ground. So some kind of primal movement practice, again, really good at working in this way to get into this deeper embodied awareness. And when we begin to understand the relationship and depth of relationship between breathing and movement, we understand just how crucial this is to get in here. Embodied awareness is key to depth breath work, or we just continue repeating the same simplistic routine. Box breath again, anyone? Should we just do some more box breath? Three, 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 four, 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 four. Or should we go deeper? There comes a point in time where we have to go deeper. And the key to going deeper, one of the keys to going deeper is definitely embodied awareness. Interestingly, there have been practices within the yogic tradition. And the yogic tradition, I, I include the Vedic world, you know, Buddhism, you know, the practices from China, from the Shaolin schools, from the Chan schools, from some of the Zen schools. These, all these practices are related. The, you know, the, uh, the movements from India, the, the, word, the word that unites them all, by the way, is Dhyan, which means absorption. And Dhyan became Chan in China when it moved to China, and it became Zen in Japan. And there's a continuum of practice. It looks like separate pieces and separate chunks, but again, it's a seamless web of engagement through space-time when we look carefully into that. And within these schools of practice, we find if we go back far enough, Practices that look into the structure of the body, where they're using awareness inside the structure of the body, to yeah, this embodied awareness skin inside the structure of the body. And one of the original names for reflecting and feeling deeply into the body, into a particular place in the body, was a shtana. And shtana simply means place. You know, we have the Hindu shtana, which is place where the Hindus live. We have the Afghanistana, which is where the place where the Afghanis live. So a shtana in the body was simply a place. And it was a place for meditating, a place for feeling deeply. So we have shtana dharana, which is looking, paying attention in a feeling sense 
into different parts of the body to uncover how this area, what is, what's the information here? What's the awareness here about? No different schools of practice. Some had four shtanas, some had 18 shtanas. One of them had 64 shtanas, 64. So one of the practices I do has 64, 64 places of observance within the structure of the body. There are other ways of doing it as well. Now, interestingly, what happened over time, of course, with different traditions and the kind of both emergence and the um, coming together of different traditions, both there's two factors, there's the emergence, the arising, the evolution, and also the merging and the coming together of different traditions, and both those weaving through space-time in that kind of way. And then we find out arising out of that, that the name of the shtanas gradually changed, and the name that became prominent was chakra. Now, chakra, interestingly, has a sound ch on the front of it. Ch, like in chakra, like in chocolate. The chakra tradition was taken to the West to, you know, uh, slightly prematurely maybe, but certainly not in its original sense. Some might call it expropriation, in fact. But it was taken by people like Madame Blavatsky and Carl Jung. And those characters, kind of, you know, through that lineage, the word became chakra. So what we find in a lot of Western-type practices, New Age practices, is the word chakra. But it's the same kind of principle. It's the same kind of principle of looking into the structure of the body in some way. Now, interestingly, in the yogic tradition, the chakras were not defined as being a particular thing. This chakra has this particular quality and means this particular thing. Because there was a process there, first of all, of feeling into the body. So the primary and first aspect of practice was feeling in, dharana, feeling, focusing in, into those centers of the body. And again, the, you know, the main tradition that survived is one that has six of those chakras and a seventh center, which is actually a loka. Many people think of them as seven chakras. But those seven, six to six to seven centers, there are seven altogether. And that's one of the traditions that really thrived. But there were many others. Like I said, there's an 11 and 13 and 18 and so forth. So lots of different traditions. So they're obviously not all right. And what they are doing, in a way, is feeling into those, into those somites, feeling into those chunks of what does it feel like when I get more and more refined in terms of feeling into the segmental body. If we look into Chinese practice, there are three chunks, if you like, three centers, three shtanas. There's the lower dantian, the middle dantian, and the upper dantian. And if we look at Tibetan practice, if we go to East Tibet or West Tibet, again, they're slightly different. We have either four or five different centers that people look into, feel into, experience, and explore. So we've got many different, many different ways of doing it. We could do it with all of those somites. But that's quite, you know, that's quite subtle, very, very refined, very nuanced. So coming in and feeling a kind of, you know, what it's like, you know, can you imagine just feeling into your belly to begin with? This is actually a pretty good thing to do for a lot of for a lot of people in the modern contemporary world. Just feeling what it feels like inside one's own belly is a big step. What's the feeling like there where it's different to feeling into the chest? What's the feeling like where it's different to feeling into the head? What's the front of the head and the back of the head feel like? What's the differences in terms of informational feeling in those different zones, in those different areas? So then if we split those into two, we get, you know, what does it feel like when you feel down into your pelvic floor? And again, that's quite complicated because, you know, in the, in the, in the traditions which come from the Abrahamic religions, that's Judaism, Islam, and Christianity primarily, some aspects of those traditions there's quite a lot of shame around the pelvic floor. 
you know, it, it's a problematic area, should we say. So, you know, the, the, this, you know, the pelvic floor is often riddled in shame. And that's before we even get into, you know, some of its functions. And, and you know, it's complicated for people to feel into that area of the body. But if we're going to explore depth breath work, we have to go there because the nature and the relationship of the pelvic floor to the respiratory diaphragm is such that they are an intimate, continuous dance, a continuous relationship. And that relationship changes with movement. It gets really fascinating. And again, one of the things we do on my um, Embody Breathwork Instructor course is really go deep into exploring these relationships because it's fundamental to working with changing breathing pattern disorders and getting into depth breathwork. So shtanas, chakras, somites, the relationship between them. And of course, one of the things that happened as well in the Vedic world and you know in the Tibetan world as well, the Tibetan Buddhist world, was the installation of different feelings, of different states, of different phase changes into those centers. So if we look at something like water, it has phase changes. We have um, water, which we can take for granted, but then it's a phase change into ice and it has a phase change into gas into vapor we could also have water as plasma which is where it's massively electrically charged hot electrically charged plasma we could also have vicinal water which is the quality of water in the living body which again is different again it's structured water in the living body so that's several different phase changes for water and so what we do is we introduce the phase changes into the chakras and where they were installed and those phase changes are called elements. One is earth, one is water, one is fire, one is air, one is space, and one is mind. And those, interestingly, isn't it, have mind in there. Yeah? Because in those traditions as well, mind is a sense field. Like the other sense fields, we have the external five sense fields, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, those external sense fields. But then we have interoception within the body, the capacity to feel in, in embodied awareness inside the body. And there's the gut feeling. You know, the, the enteric nervous system has its own sense of integrity and depth. And a lot of the practices we do in embodied breath work, again, go into this dimension of the gut brain. It's actually the most ancient brain. It really is. Because, you know, it, it's 500 million years old. It's the an most ancient neural architecture we've got. The rest of the neural structures are built on that gut brain. And then we've got the heart, which has its own rhythm, it's the most electromagnetic organ in the body. You know, it has its own neural structures. It's a very profound feeling center. You know, as we refer to soften in our culture, you know, we talk so much about the heart, about, you know, whether it's a broken heart or opening a heart or closing our hearts. You know, we talk about so many aspects of heartlessness or feeling, you know, this person's got good heart. We talk about courage, of course. Courage is also referring to, to the heart. So the heart has its own sense of feeling. And then, of course, thinking. The cerebral cortex thinking is understood in that system of understanding those multiplicity of senses as a way of making sense of the other senses. So all that sensory information from, from the external fields and from the internal field of the body rising up into the brain, the brain is busy making sense out of all of that, which, of course, is exactly what it's doing. So that installation of phase changes into the body was a way of touching into the body in terms of and feeling into what does solidity feel like? What's the intelligence in solidity? And what's my relationship to solidity? What's my relationship to fluidity? What's my relationship to kinesis, to movement, fire? What's my relationship to vapor, to gaseousness, air, 
the fact that this body is largely oxygen and hydrogen. Oxygen goes to every cell. This is a, there's a lot of kind of gas here. And also space, the fact that all of this is space. All of this body is space, and within the body is space. Between atoms is space. There's an infinite amount of space, and around it is space, and we are space-time. Not, it's not that we are in space-time. That, again, is a, a, an independence illusion, the idea that we are in space-time. We are not in space-time. We are space-time. We're a function of space-time, inseparable. So this installation of these elements or these phase changes into the body is very common. And it's done in different ways, different arrangements. The common, most common one often is, is with the stability, the earth at the bottom. But it can be done in different ways. And it can be done in a multiplicity of ways, mixed up in various ways, because it depends on the practice as to what the teachers were seeking their students to find in terms of awareness. And remember, we're finding awareness. We're not making it. Now, awareness can neither be created nor destroyed. <laughs> and, you know, playing with the you know, laws of thermodynamics there. One of the interesting things about this installation of these phase changes in is its relationship to something in yogic speak, which is known as Abhinivesha. I have to introduce Abhinivesha. Abhinivesha is a Sanskrit word, which means the fear of dying. And Abhinivesha is in all beings. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter how rich they are. It doesn't matter how poor they are. It doesn't matter how wise they are, how clever they are. None of it matters. Abhinivesha is in all living things. And it is the fear of dying and that aversion to dying, that you know, push and the, the pulling away from it. So one of the reasons for doing these phase change practices was to understand them as a death practice. What is your relationship like to solidity? What is your relationship like to fluidity? What is your relationship like to kinesis? What is your relationship like to vapor, gaseousness, and to space? What is your relationship like? Because at the point of death, the experience of consciousness withdraws from solidity. There, you know, there's just heaviness. And then the blood stops flowing, and that fluidity is gone. And then the body gets cold. It gets really cold. The thermogenesis is ending. It's over. And then the breath stops flowing. What's your relationship to air like now? So these practices, these installation practices, were to a degree also a death practice, a pre preparation for death. Well, why be so morbid? What on earth is that about? What a weird thing to do, you might say. And you might think, well, death practice in this sense is a practice of entering into life, because in every moment there's a death of the last moment and an emergence into the new. And this relentless emergence from the old to the new allows us to really step into that emergence fully without fear and without gripping. It allows us to take those big risks rather than holding back in fear. It allows us to emerge without being scared of what's arising. It's a huge yes to life because life is short enough. So the reason for doing these somite-oriented installations of phase changes is to say yes to life in a meaningful way. One of the other practices from this uh, diaspora that really enabled this depth work of going into this is breath holding. And breath holding, when it's understood well, one of its functions, again, has many functions, 
one of its functions is to get into that edge of Abhinivesha. Because for land-breathing creatures, the greatest fear is the fear of asphyxiation. You know, we can see this with um, when people have amygdalic damage. That's damage to the fear-based part of the brain, the bit of the brain that registers fear. When there's damage to that and they feel no fear, if you give them enough carbon dioxide so the brainstem thinks it's dying, they will feel fear. They will panic. So this, this breath holding is one of the ways to enter into this and to touch into this on a regular basis. Now, it has to be intelligent breath work. And again, on our courses, we teach intelligent breath work because so much breath work is unintelligent. And what you find as a result of the practice is a deepening of panic. So it has to be done well. But when it's done well, what you do is enter into that on a daily basis. So all the other things of life are small things. You know, it's the small stuff because the big thing is being looked at already. So when we look at the big thing in the morning, which is the Abhinivesha, then the rest of it is just stuff to do. It's, it's part of life. It's not a problem, whatever that thing is. So it's a kind of way of dealing with stress, a preemptive, proactive way of dealing with stress in a very, very profound and powerful way. So this is part of the reason, you know, these kind of practices have been done traditionally. There are many other aspects to them as well. I'm not in, you know, in, in, in trying to cover all of those tonight. There's no way that in this session I can do that. You know, one of the greatest ironies is that many people born with good health spend their life chasing money. They spend their life chasing money, chasing money, chasing money. And in the process, lose their health, ending up in metabolic dysfunction. And then you have to spend an awful lot of money trying to regain your health, which of course is much, much harder as you age. Now, the key to aging well is mitochondria and mitochondrial dysfunction is created by by essentially too much comfort it's too much fuel too much glucose too much sugar too much of it and if there's too much fuel you know and too little oxygen from hypoxia from poor breathing or from cramped sitting or bodies that don't move well you know the the, the systems of the body regulate like i said you know the, the breathing reflexes of the body are pretty impressive they really really are and they they are not just about getting lots of oxygen into the cells it's about getting the right amount of oxygen into the cells at the right time in the right amount to those particular cells as well it's very specific the amount of oxygen in the cells is low it's very minimal one to two percent depending on the cell depending on how close they are to the capillaries and so forth so when we start reducing the oxygen from from poor breathing, and there's a whole range of ways we could do that, and some of them are called breathing pattern disorders, um, some you know some kind of breathing practices, some kind of breathwork practices will do that, will take you into hypoxia. And what happens, you know, that, that's one of the sources of mitochondrial function. Another is lack of aerobic fitness, where somebody's you know sedentary to the degree whereby their mitochondria aren't being engaged effectively. So the mitogenesis, the manufacture, the creation of new mitochondria and the destruction or the mitophagy of old ones, it all becomes less efficient. And what we end up there is mitochondrial dysfunction. And then we've got, you know, we're short of the currency of life, which is the incredible molecule ATP, adenosine triphosphate. Adenosine triphosphate is life energy for all living things. It's the same for trees. It's the same for fungi. It's the same for uh, anything all mammals, all vertebrates, all reptiles, all amphibians, all run on ATP. It's the currency of life. And when that's no longer produced in a way that enables ongoing repair and well-being, an organism gets sick and it ages and it dies. So keeping our mitochondria well is absolutely crucial. So we need to know what our breathwork practices are doing 
or we could be harming the mitochondria. And when we get into that mitochondrial dysfunction, we're causing trouble. We're going to cause a lot of trouble. And the problem with mitochondrial dysfunction is it's not, it's not like, you know, you, you do something on a Saturday and on Sunday it becomes evident. It can take, it can take five years. It can take 10 years to come through. You know, mitochondrial dysfunction and metabolic dysfunction can take a decade. It can take two decades. But the end result is problematic. And the end result, the problems become highly problematic. I'm not going to go deep into those. That's another podcast where I have to talk about those. But the basic thing is keeping mitochondria well as the key to aging well is absolutely essential. And we therefore really need to understand what we're doing to enable that. It's all well and good to have some, you know, Instagram stories. It's all well and good to have some cherry picking of science. But if we don't really know what we're doing there, we could be causing trouble. And it's useful to know what's happening here. I want to talk a little bit about suboptimal breathing. Suboptimal breathing is when we're breathing faster than our body's oxygen needs demand. So another term for that is hyperventilation. And hyperventilation is any time we are breathing more than our metabolic demand. We're breathing in and out faster than the amount of oxygen is needed in the cells. We breath workers, and I'm, you know, I'm a breath worker too. We breath workers like to pretend that practices such as conscious connected breathing is not hyperventilation. It is hyperventilation. It's cyclical hyperventilation. Now, for a short period of time, it might be okay, but it is hyperventilation because we're breathing faster than our body's oxygen uh, and metabolic needs are, right? Now, when we do that, the consequence is carbon dioxide exhaled from the blood. So it's a pushing out of carbon dioxide from the blood. And that leads to reduction of hydrogen concentration in the blood an alkalosis of the blood, a reduction of hydrogen ion concentration in the blood because carbon dioxide in the blood is split into bicarbonate ions and hydrogen ions. And those two are for the blood. They, they regulate the acidity, alkalinity of the blood. And when we push the carbon dioxide out, we're reducing the amount of those hydrogen ions. And that leads to a more alkaline fluid environment of the blood. And this then in turn leads to reduced oxygen uptake in the cells simply because the oxygen can't leave the hemoglobin. For the oxygen that the hemoglobin is a protein and for it to unfold and the oxygen to be released, there have to be hydrogen ions there. So if we're blowing out our carbon dioxide, those hydrogen ions aren't there to unfold the hemoglobin to release the oxygen. So the oxygen just can't leave the hemoglobin. It keeps on circulating around the body. And we get, you know, people have done oxygen saturation tests on people doing cyclical hyperventilation for long periods of time, something like conscious connected breathing. And what you get is 100% saturation of hemoglobin in the, in the blood. And what that means is the oxygen just isn't leaving the hemoglobin. So that means it's not getting into the cells. We are creating cellular hypoxia. Cellular hypoxia for a short period of time, very short period of time, can be beneficial. For a longer period of time, it can be extremely problematic. You know, the increases of acidity in the blood also compromises the stress response and the respiratory rate. There are so many factors that we have to consider and think about when we're doing breathing practice to understand whether we're doing a practice that is serving our ongoing well-being or is detrimental to our ongoing well-being. And a lot of these questions are not adequately answered yet. They're really not. And it's time we started pushing for and driving for more and more and more research to get these questions answered because breathwork breath is in danger of becoming a, another dubious practice unless we get some good research in and start understanding, you know, just how these um, practices affect, affect our well-being at a cellular level. Take a breath. 
Take a breath. Now let's come back to the hypothalamus. We were talking about stress. So once the hypothalamus is activated and continually reactivated through any ongoing stress cascade and the adrenal glands are activated and adrenaline and cortisol is released, then the whole body and mind is in fight, flight, fright, freeze, fawn and flop. That's six Fs. Flight, fight, fright, freeze, fawn and flop. And that mode of the sympathetic nervous system, which is the stress-based branch, the activity-based branch of the autonomic nervous system. It's not fair just to call it the stress-based branch because whenever you move some muscles, you're doing sympathetic nervous system activity. As soon as you move, you know, you're going to be doing that, okay? It's part of it. But when this is overactivated, shall we say, it leads to digestive disorders, potential heart conditions, autoimmune diseases, and a host of other complications, including dementia as well, diabetes, one of the ways we have available to reduce and resolve these stress cascade and their consequences is the use of conscious breath work. But you notice here, the use of conscious breath work here doesn't mean the kind of cyclical hyperventilation necessarily. We need a range of practices. And the range of practices we teach on in body breath work, we have four, 30 different core practices, for example. Those practices are there to embed into your life and to because again you have to you have to work with them to understand them you have to work with the repetition of those practices to really understand them in your body you have to put them into your body place them in the body you have to install them into your body and work with them and when you embed them in your life and work with them you can you can radically shift your stress cascade you can take control of that stress cascade and understanding the balance of blood gases in relation to the stress response perhaps we can begin to see the necessity of a systematic breath-based practice whereby the first thing we learn is down-regulation. How do we learn to de-stress first before we go into escalating stress? If, if people are already escalated into stress, if their body is already uh, not breathing in a good functional way, if they are you know, already hypoxic, going into some kind of cyclic hyperventilation practice may not be the best thing to do. It might work for some individuals, but those individuals it doesn't work for are the ones that interest me. I'm always interested in the ones that, you know, when I was teaching yoga, there are so many different styles of yoga these days. And what I'm interested in is the people who leave the class, the people who don't come back. Why don't they come back? That's the question I ask myself. Why are they not coming back? And it's because that practice isn't suiting them. So what we do is we tend to self-select. Because people are teaching one particular style of breathwork or one particular thing, we tend to self-select for the people that like that particular thing. And then we assume that particular thing is suitable for everybody. And it isn't. People are different. People have different nuances of psychology and physiology and, and different mechanics of breathing, depending on what their personal history of breathing practice and or athletics and everything else is. There are so many different variables and so many different factors. So we have to start looking at the individual to understand how these practices affect the individual. And this requires a systematic, step-by-step, breath-based practice. And that, in my view, starts with a practice that starts with down-regulation because we live in an adrenalized world. We live in a highly adrenalized, cortisol-rich world. And de-stressing and a more yin approach to breath-holding and breath-work is where we can gradually, step-by-step, -step, build up potential and power in the system. When we build up potential power in the system, we can remain in an internal parasympathetic vagal response throughout any breathwork practice, even when the practice appears yang. So we get more and more at ease inside of our own biology, inside of our own system. And this is a systematic development of practice. So 
embodied awareness is absolutely crucial for going deeper into practices. You know, what I bring together with the practice I teach is the three personal, we've got three personal meta-disciplines. One is embodied awareness. The next one is conscious breath work, systematic conscious breath work. And the third one is mind training, mind mastery, as I sometimes call it. But it's mind training. It's training the mind. It's working with optimal mind states and understanding how all this structure works this structure here and how this relates through the body, through the sense fields, the internal senses of the body. All of this is mind. So we've got mind training, we've got conscious breath work, and we've got embodied awareness. And three, these three meta-disciplines, these personal meta-disciplines, give us the capacity and the way of working deeper and deeper and deeper into the system to create greater and greater freedom through finding more and more and more awareness within the structures of the system. And when we do this, we gradually shift from the narratives and the experiences of distress to experiences of greater ease and meeting life's demands with much, much more grace, much more acceptance, much more um, radical acceptance, in fact. Another aspect of you know deeper breathwork practice is using the breath as an attentional foci. And when we build the muscles of focus in the brain and we can, you know, one of the things we're doing with that kind of focus is we're increasing neural bridges from the uh, medial prefrontal cortex to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So we're building choice. We're building choice and awareness into the brain. And this is really important with the modern age. I mean, we've got this, you know, this digital scrolling that we do. Here we go, digital scrolling. And when people do this, they go into this kind of shape too, which is extremely complicated and creates uh, some serious hypoxia in the system. So the digital scrolling device, this, grabs hold of your dopaminergic systems, the systems of motivation, how you, you know, the, the anticipation and reward systems of dopamine in the brain. And it's built to function around that. That's this, all of this is built to do that, to tease your brain into paying attention to this continuously and consistently. So when you, when you do a breath-based practice of focus, one of the things you're doing is retraining those systems. So at any point in your time, you can put it down and break, the, break that addictive tendency of the digital media with your brain operating systems, your motivational operating systems. So we've got systems here which work really well in terms of helping and enabling us to live in the modern life, both in terms of our digital interface and also in terms of how we work with stress. Because, you know, there's a huge mismatch here between our biology, which is uh, still to a huge degree in hunter-gatherer zone, and our culture and our world, which is technical, digital, fast pace, high demand, informational demand, socially demanding, socially fragmented. We're not in those little packs and those families anymore. We're in very big cities or big communities. We're traveling and moving, strangers everywhere. It's a complex world we live in. So this kind of conscious breathwork gives us ways of really landing in and creating the space we need internally and finding awareness in terms of the structure of the body, in terms of working with awareness in terms of breath and finding out what it is with the breath that enables us to feel more energized and more well. You know, so we're looking at the relationship between breath and mind and awareness and body and energy. And awareness is what's being shared here. Awareness of how we work, awareness of the breath-based practices. You know, we can't change anything if we're not aware of it. If we're not aware of what it is, what shape, texture, form, or pattern it has. Awareness in that way is the ultimate medicine for stress. It's the ultimate medicine for trauma as well. 
It's the ultimate medicine to build resilience. Awareness, balanced with curiosity, care, and compassion is profound medicine. And it's medicine that we need in this time.